No, it's not me. I have the opportunity to introduce our speaker this morning, and I uh, we had a wedding here yesterday with Jonathan uh, Montoya, uh, married Madison Keck, and uh, I thought I was going to be introducing the Montoya family this morning. Instead, I'm going to be introducing the enclave, the, the tribe, uh, the clan. Uh, first of all, the Kecks are here from McMinnville. Uh, Steve uh, used to used and I used to work together uh, at Bryan College. Kim is a professor there in music, and uh, uh, appreciate them very much. And their daughter, who attended here while she was a student. Um, I also wanted to uh, to introduce. And I'm, I'm going to uh, actually uh, ask Edwin Zelai if would you would stand up. Uh, Edwin is a professor of New Testament at uh, the uh, seminary Meda, Honduras, and uh, we're delighted to have Edwin here with his family, his wife Kimberly, and their children. So uh, thank you, brother. And I want to mention uh, Carlos. Um, I, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, Carlos. He conducted the wedding yesterday uh, to, uh, to Maddie and um, with uh, Maddie and Jonathan. Uh, he is known to most of you as he would be known as the father of Jonathan and Jeremy, uh, who attended here when, uh, when uh, they were students at Bryan. Uh, he's also the father of Kimberly and Marcy and Leslie and Sarah and Abby, who are sitting here. And uh, we're glad to have them with us. He is known to me, originally, as the boyfriend of Lori Swaim, who is my secretary. And uh, they have now been married uh, 30 years this, at the end of this month. Uh, Lori uh, was our, uh, a student and then became a close friend of our family. And it's fun to see how God has done this uh, over the years. He was also known um, to others as he was growing up as the son of Samuel Montoya. Samuel Montoya was the Spanish voice of J. Vernon McGee through all the Spanish-speaking world uh, of uh, the uh, Trans World Radio broadcasts of J. Vernon McGee. So that was his, his heritage. Uh, he's known to his students as professor of Hebrew and president of the Meda Theological Seminary in uh, Siguatepeque, Honduras, uh, where he and Lori and the family have served for the last 19 years. Betsy and I are very, very close to this family. We love them dearly and are very thankful to have Carlos share the word with you. Thank you, brother. <laughs> love you. Well, thank you for that introduction. Um, it's, it really is a privilege and a blessing to be here. I was here just, uh, what, about 20 hours ago. A little more back there with the mic and marrying two special people. So good to see the Kecks here as well. Um, this, this church is a very special church. I've not attended it much. I've been here, I think, two or three times now. Uh, but the, uh, the first time, I think this is the first time that we were here, is when Jonathan, uh, we brought Jonathan to Brian to start. Somebody help me there. Is that 2015, 2016? Do you know, Kim? Do you remember? Don't remember. <laughs> We couldn't remember. Anyway, 
uh, he came, and so we, we, we really felt like, uh, though he's coming to a Christian cause, we said, listen, you really need to plug into a body. You need to plug into a church. Um, that's, that's the most important thing. And uh, so, you know, you can test the waters, go to different churches, and see what, uh, what the Lord will lead you to get involved in. And so this is the first church we came to, 45 minutes away from Dayton. And so after the service, I think uh, Lewis was preaching. And, um, and afterwards, you know, we just thought, okay, this is, uh, we'll check this one, and then we'll see what the next one is. And, and I told Jonathan, well, you know, I hope you enjoyed it. And he goes, we don't have to look anymore. He just said, we don't have to. This is where I'm going to come. That's it. First church, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful affirmation. Uh, just uh, and and he he stayed here for the the time that he was at Brian and then Jeremy joined him uh, a year later I think and came here so you all have had a great impact in these two boys and uh, so we are we are so thankful we are thankful that our boys could go through college but more than that could plug in somewhat I know because of studies and everything maybe they weren't 100 percent here but. Uh, uh, definitely played a, a huge, huge role. And, um, and, and, and one of the reasons we sent him to Brian is because we knew Dr. Phillips, uh, which I, he wants me to call him Gary. So Pastor Gary, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Gary. And, uh, and we, just, we just love him and Betsy, and um, it was just so wonderful to be able to connect again uh, since uh, Lori uh, went there as well. So we're grateful, grateful for this time, grateful for this weekend. What an incredible weekend. Um, it's just, just amazing how the Lord providentially has, has blessed. Well, this morning, uh, I want to exalt, I want all of us to exalt the person of Jesus Christ by considering a specific ministry of our Lord and Savior, that, that, that I believe in some way is a ministry that is, is, is neglected in our understanding and, and, and misunderstood many times as well. Nevertheless, it is, let me put it this way, I, I really believe it is the most powerful encouragement and comfort to our spiritual walk. The truth that we will unfold this morning in the text is the most powerful encouragement, the most powerful comfort of our spiritual walk. It's based on the most significant event of all history. Of course, I speak of the resurrection, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which we just celebrated a few weeks ago. The resurrection of Christ is clearly attested both in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, and a basic question that I will answer this morning is, how does his resurrection impact my life every single day? How does his resurrection have an impact of my life every day? When we read the passage before us today, we, we might not readily see the answer to this question, but I truly believe as we study this out, it will be the most important truth for our daily sanctifying experience as a believer in Jesus Christ. So please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We heard the 
reading of God's Word from 1 John chapter 1, and we'll read the first few verses of 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I, I see there's a clock up here, and uh, Gary gave me instructions at what time um, I can preach to, uh, but he didn't realize that I, I work under an exchange rate in Honduras of 24 to 1. So we'll see what happens, you know. So bear with me and stay with me here. Let's, let's, this is what God's Word says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So in chapter 2, verse 1, John begins to address his readers in a very tender way by saying, my little children. It's, a, it's an expression of tenderness from a, from a father to his children, a spiritual father to his spiritual children. Uh, we don't know exactly who these readers were. There's no indication in the, uh, in the, in the letter uh, who these uh, readers were, but because, with church history and piecing some things together, we believe that John was uh, pastoring in Ephesus. And and he was overseeing churches in all of Asia Minor. And so I believe uh, the, the personal nature of this letter was directed to the different churches in the Asia Minor uh, area. And he considered them as their little children. He considered them as, as, as his disciples, as, as, as people who continually needed that encouragement in a, very t- in a time of a lot of hostility, in a time of a lot of... Um, um, false doctrine that was, was growing. So here we have an elderly spiritual father concerned for his dear children that they do what is right, that they live lives in such a way that will please the Lord. My little children, what an affectionate expression that emphasizes that, that intimate relationship that John as an apostle had with these very beloved disciples. He was concerned. And and you can see this concern. You you see this tenderness, but you see this concern. And and the concern is because because the the, the readers were experiencing these these new doctrines that were coming in. And actually, uh, in the church, it's interesting that he was pastoring church in Ephesus. And and we see that, that Paul, if you recall in Acts 20, even said to the elders of, you know, that there will be wolves that will come within, within the church, from within the church. And this, this is what was happening. This is what was happening. And, and, and history tells us that there was, there was this, the beginning of this, this false doctrine, as many now call Gnosticism, from the word gnosis, which is like uh, knowledge, and it's like this new elite knowledge. And it was challenging the gospel, challenging the purity 
of the gospel. And there, there were some, some basic tenets of, of this doctrine. Uh, very interesting. Um, basically, it pitted the flesh against the spirit, saying that the flesh is bad and evil, and the spirit is good, pure. And so, so they would say they cannot mix. The flesh and the spirit cannot mix. And, and, so, and so this had implications on how one viewed Christ and one viewed Jesus. Well, if the flesh is evil and the spirit is good, and, and, and if, if Jesus is really God, how could he have actually been in the flesh? Because there's no way that, that a, 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 a pure divinity deity could be covered by flesh that is evil, so they would then deny the incarnation. And that's why we have in those first verses that we read today what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes. There's this reality, all the senses that John gives here to say, hey, this, the incarnation happened. We saw it, we, we heard it, we felt. Did you see that? We felt him. We touched him. And testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And, and so, so there was this, this, this wrong, false perspective on Jesus Christ. But, but also on the, the person's daily life with this idea of flesh being bad and the spirit being good, there were, there were, this led to two great errors. One was an extreme asceticism, an extreme denial of self. It's sort of this, the, 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 the monastery complex, if you will. You know, we will, not, we will not eat certain things. We will not do certain things. We will deny our bodies of certain things because everything fleshly, anything to do with the earth fleshly is evil. So there's this deep, in extreme asceticism. But on the other hand, the, the, the pendulum kind of swung to another error, saying since flesh and spirit don't mix, well, then there was this extreme licentiousness. Since sin is really a spiritual matter, a spiritual reality, and, and not a fleshly experience, then sin really doesn't exist. We can do whatever we want in our flesh, and it's really not sin. We aren't sinning. So we went from extreme asceticism to extreme licentiousness. And I, and I believe, of course, this would concern this apostle that, that his readers would not fall into this, this false doctrine. And so in the, in the, in the, in the get-go there in, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things. I am writing these things to you. This, something you need to know about John, and I know you know it. He is direct. He is clear. He just tells it like it is. He says, I want one thing for you guys. I am writing these things, and I think he's referring to truths that he has expounded in chapter 1, especially verses 5 through 10, which we'll see very briefly. I'm writing these things to you so that. Here's a purpose statement. Very clear. So that, here's the purpose for writing to you. It is clear. So that you may not sin. 
so that you may not sin. Readers, beloved children, basically, I want you to not sin. To not sin. He desires the disciples to be holy. It's interesting as we study out in the original language this, this idea of not sinning so that you may not sin. It's, it's um, it, it, what in the Greek is called the aorist tense. Uh, the, the idea really is I desire that you never, ever, ever sin. And I think this is very, very important. He's not just saying... I. I don't want you to sin. Uh, you know, I know you're, you're going to do a little bit, but, you know, just kind of keep it balanced. No. He wants his readers to pursue 100% perfection. I, I don't want you to ever sin. I want you to hate the thought of sinning. He, he's basically saying we cannot be we cannot be content with, with saying, you know, my life is about 99% pure and, and there is that 1% or even 99.99 pure and there's that 0.01%. You know, it's, 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 well, it's a well, good life because it's not, yeah, it's not 100%, uh, but I'm okay with that because I'm at least, I'm over 99 with a 0.99. No. You can't settle for anything less than perfection in your pursuit. In your pursuit. The goal is not just 99%. The goal is 100%. In your pursuit, I should daily pursue being absolutely pure. I don't want you to sin. I'm writing these things to you so that you may never sin. See, up to this point, it's interesting, John has been underscoring the reality of our sinfulness. (laughs) We read this morning, even as believers. And he was highlighting this to correct the false teaching to the contrary. Look at how, how he developed this in the previous verses, highlighting the various errors on sin. You know, in, verse, in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, highlighting God's purity. He's 100%. He is 100% pure. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, none whatsoever. He is perfect. He is perfect. So, so, but we, we have these people uh, who, who, who say, and then we see that in verse 6, if we say, and, and we see in verse 8, if we say, and number, in verse 10, if we say, we, we see this pattern that he, he uses to argue, to make his argument. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, that's, that's, that's just stupidity. We lie. And we do not practice the truth. You, you can't say that we're pure and, and, and are doing dark deeds. So we see that he deals with sinful here licentiousness. Living in total darkness while declaring pure spirituality. 
And then verse 8, we see how he deals with, with sinful denial. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we, we have no sin. We, have the, we don't have this principle of sin. We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, he deals with sinful perfectionism. If, if, if we say that we have not Sin, de- declaring that we uh, somehow were able to reach some sinless level of perfection. What does he say? <laughs> now, now he says we make him, make God, a liar, and his word is not in us. These are probably the ones who believe their, their ascetic lifestyle made them perfect before God. So, so in these verses, verses 5 through 10 of chapter 1, John has argued for the reality of sin's presence, specifically in the believer. So the believer, even as a believer, will, will continue to commit sin. We see that. Now, this reality could have left the reader thinking in two ways. He could have thought, well, since it's impossible to not sin, then there is no reason really to try to be holy. I'll, be, I'll settle myself with 99 and one. Or he could have thought, well, since, since I have God's forgiveness for all my sin, because he did talk about, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Well, he's forgiven us all our sins. I don't really have to worry about trying to live without sin. So, so to ward off any inclination of the, of the reader to think in either one of these ways, John, in, in unquestionable, very direct terms, states his purpose for writing these things. Hey, hate sin. I don't want you to sin. Yes, there's this reality of, of believers, even them, sin, but your pursuit, your direction should always be 100% perfection. So that you may not ever, ever sin. So John writes, so that the readers will take sin seriously. Ooh, we need to take sin seriously. Never read the scriptures and think there is an ounce in there that will belittle the seriousness of sin. In chapter 3, verse 4, he describes what sin is. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. It's, it's law. You are going against the law of God. And sin is lawlessness. You sin, you have offended a holy and perfect God. See, sin, sin, my beloved, is extremely serious. There's never an excuse to sin. It is extremely serious. We should not belittle its power. We should not belittle its tragic consequences. He establishes that so that you may not sin. But having argued for the reality of sin in the believer, what hope is there for the believer then? What hope is for, for us who, 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 who still sin? There's sort of this irony going on. And this is what John now addresses. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, 
We have an advocate with the Father, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Brethren, I submit to you that this is the most important and hope-filled truth as it directly deals with our current sanctifying experience. It deals with our current struggle with sin. We struggle. We will sin. Now, now I want you to see this. We... I'm not saying that when he says, when he says I, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin and you can get to a level of perfection. He's not saying that. He's saying, I want you to have as a life goal, a pursuit, a direction to never sin. You can never have a pursuit of saying, if I can just do this little thing here, nobody will even notice or whatever. You know, no, 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 you can't do that. But in this life's experience as you are pursuing holiness, perfect holiness, you will sin. You will sin. And it's interesting there, and he says, and, and if anyone sins, this is very interesting. John is very clear and precise with his language. He, he again, uses the, the aorist tense here. So it, it's, it's most, it's better probably translated, if you, if you commit sin, it's clearly not if you have a habitual, unrepentant lifestyle of sin. He doesn't say that. If you commit sins, it, that's what the Greek brings out. If you, if you commit, so so a, a true believer cannot be in a habitual, unrepentant lifestyle of sin, but they do commit sins. So as we look at these words, that was just the introduction. My goodness, it's 5 till 12. What do I do? Please don't fall asleep. We're going to do this. We're going to get through this. I can do this. Here we go. So as we look at these words, we want to observe three aspects of Christ's advocacy to increase our wonder. This is, this is just such hope-filled words. Our wonder of our great and exalted Savior and in turn encourage us in our daily spiritual journey. What we'll see first is the need for Christ's victorious advocacy the need for it, the reason for Christ's victorious advocacy. We'll see second and third, the extent of Christ's victorious advocacy. The verse says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, what exactly is an advocate? It, it literally means one who comes to the aid of, one who helps, one, one who is, is there to help the person. And This is what how Christ describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, is how they translate it there, that he may be with you forever. The Holy Spirit is an advocate. We could have translated an advocate there in the sense that he pleads for our cause and, and our case before a hostile world. And, and in this passage in chapter 2 of 1 John, we see Christ presented as our advocate in heaven, pleading for us. Before the Father, it says, and we have here, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. It, it, it literally says before the Father. We'll see the, the implication of that. The idea is one who comes alongside of us to help the accused before a judge. So we ask, why is there this need? Quickly we will first see 
this first aspect, the need of Christ's victorious ad- advocacy. And, 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 and we can highlight two conditions of this need. First of all, our previous condition before the Father. I, I, this really came out when I was studying First John. What is salvation? What, what, what is that? You know, you know what salvation is? Salvation is fellowship with the Father. You think about that. You know, in, in uh, verse 3 of chapter 1, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The Son God sent to be a mediator so He could establish, the Father could establish a relationship between the sinner and the Father. Fellowship with the Father is what salvation is all about. To have eternal life is to have fellowship with the Father. John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life, that we may know you, he's talking to the Father, Christ in his high priestly prayer, that we may know you, the only true God, which he's referring to as the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He, he, Christ was sent to establish a fellowship with the Father. With the Father. And there's other verses, I will just mention them to you, Romans 1.18, Romans 9.39-12, and the, the verdict is clear from these verses that man is in sinful, rebelling against God, not even wanting fellowship with him. He is absolutely destitute. There's none who seeks for God. There's no fellowship with the Father. Consequently, all that awaits the sinner, the rebel, it's God's eternal wrath. But God sent his son. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to restore that fellowship with the Father. It, it, it is through the death and resurrection of Christ that we now have a restored fellowship with the Father. Do you remember in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you want to be saved, you need to have a fellowship with the Father. And there's no way, just like Shane said, beautiful words, there is no other way, there's only one way to the Father. And that's through me, Christ says. Ephesians 2, 18 through 19, for through Him, through Him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So, so we see that there is this need for, for Christ to, to advocate, to bring us in right relationship with the Father because our condition before the Father is, is total sinful rebellion. But this is not the emphasis of 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. The emphasis of this passage is our, is our present struggle with sin as Christians. Not our, not our previous state of rebellion against the Father, but our, our present struggle with sin. If anyone sins, if, if anyone sins right now, presently, so we deal with the present condition with the Father. Our struggle with sin. 
Okay, Christ dealt with our rebellion, but what about present sin before the Father? So John expresses in this conditional statement the reality that we do sin. A true Christian, like I've said before, will not be marked by an unrepentant lifestyle of habitual sin. So look what it says. If anyone sins, we have. It doesn't say we had. We currently have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. This brought to mind a, a verse in Revelation. Very, very interesting. Revelation 12, 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. So, so with accuser, who's this accuser? It's Satan. He, he is actively accusing the brethren, the believers, day and night. And so when a believer sins, ha! I got him now, God. He just sinned. He just sinned. So he has a heyday when we sin. He has a heyday. And he accuses, and he places those accusations before the Father day and, and night. But here in 1 John, what should be emphasized is the great reality of the, of the current, present, active advocacy Prostan patera, which means before the Father. This, this is an incredible statement. And, 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 and we recall the same prepositional phrase, before the Father. In, first, in John 1, the same author, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, with God. In, in the Greek, it actually says before the God, but the article there is very important. Referring to the Father. And, and so the word, Christ, was, was before that. It was face-to-face. It was intimately related to the Father. What an incredible activity in this, in this Trinitarian activity. The, Christ, before he came, he, he had this intimate, really, uh, we can't totally understand, but this intimate before God the Father. God the Father. And we see the same phrase here, before the Father. Face to face is, is, is a more literal translation. Face to face with the Father. Now, presently, the Word, the Lord, there is this real live dynamic interaction again taking place between the Son and the Father between the risen word and the Father. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see the sobering implication of this incredible statement right now? Actively advocating before the Father, doing away with those accusations from the devil as our advocate. Basically, it, it implies that when we as believers commit a sin, 
we would still experience God's wrath were it not for the real, live, present advocacy of the risen Christ. I want you to follow with me. If he had not risen, we have no hope. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 17 directly says. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, and if Christ has not been raised, okay, so it implies that he died. And we know that his death was to cleanse us. As it said there, his blood cleansed us from all sin. But it says, but if, if, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless. And look at what it says. You are still in your sins. You are hopeless. You're hopeless. Let me, let me put this in graphic terms from a different angle. If, if Christ were to have died and had not risen from the dead, simply placing his cadaver before the Father would have accomplished absolutely nothing. Nothing. We would still be in our sins, and we would still be condemned to experience the wrath of God. It was necessary for Christ to rise from the dead to be able to be the everlasting advocate before the Father. Now, my time's running out, but, I, but you have to see this. Go, go with me to Romans 5. Romans 5 is an amazing passage, and we will... Run through this in turbo speed, so put on your seatbelts, okay? Romans, let's start with Romans 4, verse, 20, verse 25. He who was delivered over because of our transgression, that's Christ, and was raised, raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace, in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And this hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. There's his death. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, through, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Describing what, what love in, in a human realm would be like. But God's love is different because God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is incredible. Much more then, having now been justified by his, bleth, by his blood or his death, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, through him, currently. And so he expounds, for if while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, through the death of his son, brought this reconciliation, brought this fellowship with the Father, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through, I'm sorry, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his, what? had to raise again we will be saved by his life because if he did not raise again we would not have an advocate and we would still be in our 
sinless. We have a victorious advocate. A victorious advocate. He was raised from the dead. The reason for this victory, the reason his advocacy is, is victorious as we go back is because he is the righteous one. He is the righteous, most perfect mediator. There is no other that could have mediated because there's no other that was righteous. The God-man lived a righteous, perfectly righteous life. He earned, if I can use that term, his right to be the advocate before the Father. We do not need to worry that the judge will reject us because what secures our favor before God the Father is not our righteousness, but the everlasting righteousness of Jesus Christ. Wow, isn't that comforting? I will never be able to muster up enough righteousness for God the Father to say, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, I see what you're trying to do. You're, okay, yeah, you're enough for me, never. I, I will never be able to do that. I need an advocate. I need a risen advocate. Do you see what that comfort? You, you know, it, it doesn't say if anyone sins, then uh, do these five Hail Marys, uh, do this penitence, go to the priest. and No. There's one, only one way that you will maintain that fellowship with that Father is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, it says there. This concept of propitiation basically has to do with the ability to remove God's wrath toward us through the perfect, just, and righteous sacrifice of Christ. We see that in Romans 3.25, so beautifully described, of being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So, so, so it is his death that was the adequate, once for all, very important, once for all propitiation to satisfy the wrath of the Father. But don't miss this great truth. Christ himself eternally and actively presents the reality of his satisfying sacrifice before the Father when we sin as believers. He is not perpetually sacrificing himself as other religions espouse. No, it was once for all. But his, his, the reality of having done that, having sacrificed, is before the Father constantly and serves to be that perfect advocate to maintain our favor before the Father. Wow. And that is what absolves us from the condemnation we deserve. And John now increases the wonder by this, of this propitiation in this intercessory ministry of Christ by expressing the extent of his victorious advocacy. The extent of his victorious advocacy, it, it reaches to us. See? He himself is the propitiation for our sins. John talking to his tender beloved disciples, children. Hey, hey, he did this for us. But you know what? <laughs> Not just for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 
also for those of the whole world now. This phrase has been the object of much debate, and we don't have time to go into all the debate. I'll just tell you what I think that says, and I believe I'm right. So, <laughs> what he is highlighting here is the wonder of Christ's advocacy for believers all across the world without distinction all across the world who, who, who sin. And, and so his emphasis is the wonder of Christ's intercessory ministry. I, I believe when the scripture talks about his intercessory ministry, I don't, I don't think it talks about Christ before the Father praying that you help Carlos's big toe heal better today. No, no. I, I think it's talking about this advocacy between him and the Father. That his intercessory ministry that assures the believer's favorable stance before the Father. So, so this advocacy will, will, only, will, will only apply to believers who have trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, to, to believers. It, it's not to the whole world. You know, if you haven't trusted Christ, well, he's going to be your advocate anyway. No, 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 that's universalism. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about believers, those who have surrendered their lives to him. So what John wants to highlight is that the advocacy is so powerful, so, so powerful to reach not only us, not only a select group of people, but it will reach all believers without distinction around the globe, regardless of race, regardless of agenda, social status, educational level, etc. His advocacy is sufficient for all. All believers in the whole world can enjoy the security that Christ presently and actively, dynamically intercedes for them to keep them in favor with the Father. So this should be a motivation for us to do what Shane is doing. <laughs> Going beyond the borders of America because his advocacy covers not only our sins but covers all believers' sins. Men and women of every tribe and nation can enjoy the wonder of his victorious advocacy. And, and that is why we we do what we do in Honduras. We, we are proclaiming and training proclaimers to preach Christ's gospel and his victorious advocacy to all the nations. We had an incredible experience uh, the other day. Um, we had some of the students come and just have fellowship, some uh, snacks with us around our round table there. Gary's been there around the Montoya round table. And as I was looking at these, like, like six or seven students, there were five nations represented in that. We have students from Peru, Colombia, Ecuador, Guatemala, El Salvador, Costa Rica, and even Cuba. We're from Cuba, it took a, about a year to get his visa, but praise the Lord, he's there and he's studying and being equipped so that he can go back and preach the excellencies of, of the victorious advocacy of Christ. So for this... We thank our Lord. So to, to conclude and, and just summarize, the basic but profoundly awesome truth in this passage is simply this. Hate sin. Pursue 100% holiness. Never settle for less. But when we sin, and, and we will, as believers, our only hope, our only remedy before the Father 
is Jesus Christ the righteous. Wow. Is Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ, our advocate. It is not our works. It is not our lifestyle. It is not any kind of ritual. It is nothing else but Jesus Christ. He is our advocate, the righteous one, the propitiation for our sins, the propitiation for all believers in the whole world. So may we be ever encouraged and may we burst into glorious praise as we stand in awe of the wondrous beauty of Christ's victorious advocacy. Let's pray.